Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We would not be sitting here talking about rock music if it weren't for people of African descent. If you start in the present and begin to trace things backward to important innovations and accomplishments, nine times out of ten, you will end up exploring something from black culture. And we can go way, way back, right to 1619, when the first slave ship arrived in North America at the British colony of Virginia, carrying about 20 captives. Over the centuries that followed, the people of Africa, consisting of many different communities and nations and tribes and cultures, were brought to the West by force, creating wounds that have yet to heal. But more than just bodies made the trip across the Atlantic. These were human beings with identities, history, traditions, and music. And these songs and rhythms helped sustain them through those awful, brutal times. There were work songs, protest songs, satirical songs, songs meant to be sung in the fields and streets, songs that were games in themselves. Some had regular rhythms, while others contained syncopated beats from traditional dance. Over the centuries, the music evolved and mutated and spread. Spirituals and gospel, blues and boogie-woogie, ragtime and jazz, rhythm and blues and bebop. And in the early 1950s, this music, with its rich history and traditions, was incorporated with country, western, hillbilly, R&B, and a few other ingredients to become what we now call rock and roll. Along the way, there were many musical artists and landmark contributions by black artists that changed everything. Without them, what we call rock today, and so much of its culture would simply not exist. These people and their accomplishments need to be recognized, commemorated, and celebrated. This is an episode on Rock Firsts by Black Artists. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Living Color from 1988 and Cult of Personality. Four black guys from New York City who brought together metal, funk, punk, hip-hop, jazz, and alt-rock into one fresh package, mating it with straight commentary on politics and race. The resulting funk metal laid the groundwork for many groups of the 1990s, ranging from Rage Against the Machine to 311 to Primus to even Korn. And if we start pulling the threads and moving into the past from Living Color, uh, you'll soon see what I mean. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this show was prepared specifically for Black History Month. What I want to do is acknowledge some rock and roll firsts by black artists. Without them, today's music may not exist as we know it. For example, did you know that the first recording star, the first person to have a hit record, was a black man? His name was George W. Johnson. He was a former slave freed around 1853 who sang on the streets of New York City starting sometime in the 1870s. In the spring of 1890, he was recruited by a man named Charles Marshall and began to make recordings for the Metropolitan and New Jersey Phonograph Companies. These recordings were for use in brand-new coin-operated phonographs that used Thomas Edison's wax cylinders. But these cylinders were pretty much impossible to reproduce, and that meant that every cylinder was a master recording. So in other words, every single cylinder had to be recorded individually. 
Johnson had a strong voice, so he could be captured by up to five recorders at a time. Once he was done with the song, the technicians would reload the machines with new blank cylinders, and he'd sing the song again. And sometimes he would repeat this 50 times. What was interesting is that his record label marketed him as a black man, something that just wasn't done when slavery was still fresh in the minds of many and segregation was strong. Johnson's most popular track was The Laughing Song, which was recorded in 1890. By 1894, The Laughing Song was the best-selling song ever. It reached number one on the brand-new music charts of the day. In fact, he was the first black performer to make those charts. And as the result of his recordings, he became a major vaudeville star. It is said that The Laughing Song sold up to 50,000 copies, which might not be entirely true because to manufacture a cylinder in those numbers, Johnson would have had to perform the song 12, 15,000 times in the studio. And at 50 performances a day, if he could do that, it would have taken a total of 300 days of singing that one song to fulfill all the orders. And he also had to record several other songs. Whatever the actual numbers, George W. Johnson was the world's first and biggest pop star in the late 1890s. But like so many careers, Johnson's popularity faded, and he ended up working as an office doorman. He died in 1914 at the age of 67 and was buried in an unmarked grave in Queens, New York. Here is George W. Johnson and what is arguably the first ever hit record. George W. Johnson and the Laughing Song. I wonder which of the 12 or 15,000 performances that was. All I can tell you is that it was a later recording from 1897. So over the years, he recorded the song a lot. The first two decades of the 20th century was all about the birth and development of jazz, a genre created by black musicians in New Orleans. Adjacent to that was the blues, another African-American invention that came from the South. These were simple songs, telling of hard lives, hard luck, real life, and sometimes the difficult relationships between men and women. This music has become known as folk blues or rural blues and began to spread across the Deep South following the American Civil War. The structure of these songs, with their three-line stances, can trace back to the field songs in the Mississippi Delta. They are also the foundations for everything from rock and R&B to funk and hip-hop. Through the 1910s and into the 1920s, many black musicians found themselves being recorded by white-owned record labels. Those recordings, now on 10-inch 78 RPM records, were popular with everyone. Trixie Smith, a blues singer originally from Atlanta, did some work for a label called Black Swan, which was based in Harlem. In September 1922, she recorded a song called My Man Rocks Me with One Steady Roll. Now, originally, rocking and rolling meant the movement of a ship on rough seas. On April 24, 1881, a white group called Johnny Morton's Minstrels performed a song in Victoria, B.C. called Rock and Roll. That seems to be the first time rock and roll was sung in public. At the same time, rocking and rolling described how animated things could become in black churches when they were singing gospel. And after that, and as sometimes happens, we went from the sacred to the profane. 
Rocking and rolling went from a joyous spiritual experience at church on a Sunday morning to a euphemism for sex. And this is where Trixie Smith's song comes in. This is the first secular use of the words rock and roll in a song where it has a bunch of different meanings. Others followed, like Rock That Thing by Lil Johnson, Rock Me Mama by Ike Robinson, Rock and Roll by the Boswell Sisters. But who was the first to use the phrase on record? Trixie Smith, 1922. In 1951, just as a new wave of music was starting to appear, Alan Freed, a white radio DJ who started his career in Cleveland, made his name by playing what were then called race records. These were songs by black artists. And at the time, this was forbidden fruit for a lot of young, white teenagers. At the same time, though, there was no denying the power and the energy of this music. Freed was pretty plugged into the culture and knew the phrase rock and roll and started referring to the records he played with that term. Now, Freed never admitted to the coded sexual connotations of the term, but he must have known. Instead, he gave this definition. Rock and roll is really swing music with a modern name. It began on the levees and plantations, took in folk songs, and features blues and rhythm, which is technically correct, but never forget the power of sex when it comes to teenagers. How about this? Who performed the first ever electric guitar solo? It appears to be a black man from Oklahoma named Charlie Christian. He was an excellent guitarist, but thought it could be used for more than just chords and rhythm. In 1931, he started soloing during jam sessions with fellow musicians. In 1936, he acquired a newfangled electric guitar and then joined Benny Goodman's big band in 1939. It was with that group that Charlie was allowed to improvise. Solo, in other words, during performances. Until he died of tuberculosis on March 3, 1941, at the age of 25, Charlie took the new amplified guitar out of the shadows and is now recognized as the person to create the foundations of the lead guitarist as we know it today. So by every measure you want to use, Charlie Christian was the world's first guitar hero. But what about the first electric guitar solo recording? That came from another black man named George Barnes. On March 1, 1938, he recorded two songs with blues guitarist Big Bill Brunzi. Here's one of them, A Low Down Dirty Shame. Barnes was just 16 years old when he played this solo. Pick it, Mr. Mang. One guy who almost certainly played Big Bill Brunsey with George Barnes was Jack L. Cooper. He was a black former boxer and semi-pro baseball player. He got a job at WBSC in Chicago as the host of the All Negro Hour, a show first broadcast on November 3rd, 1929. This was a variety show featuring music and comedy bits. But as the show became more popular, the show was extended. By mid-1936, Cooper was on the air nine and a half hours a week. And although we can't be entirely sure, it is possible that Cooper was the first to play records as part of his show. 
he brought in his phonograph and collection of jazz and gospel records, which Cooper played on the air. And this would make Cooper the first ever professional radio DJ. So, another black first. And as years went on, black radio programs increased in number and became more and more popular. And then something happened up north that changed the course of music. As the 1940s came to a close, there was a new mixing of styles, much of it propagated by changes to radio broadcasting. For many years, local radio stations carried network programming from big cities like New York, Chicago, Nashville, and Los Angeles, supplied by networks like NBC, CBS, and Mutual. These companies had all made their bones on radio. But in the late 40s and early 50s, there was a new shiny thing, television. The networks began to pivot away from cross-country radio program to cross-country TV program. As their attention to radio faded, the number of programs, the amount of investment they made in these programs, declined. That meant that many hundreds of radio stations were suddenly left without any content to come from the big city, so they had to improvise. The changes had to come fast, and they had to be cheap. A popular thing to do was to reclaim the period after 7 p.m. at night and create some local programming with local people. And the easiest and cheapest thing to do was to hire a guy to play records. This is a major shift that few people seem to remember. The focus of radio moved away from soap operas, dramas, variety shows, and comedy programs to just playing the popular music of the day. People, especially younger ones, got into the habit of turning the radio on to listen to hours of straight music. Some of them even had this new thing called a transistor radio, which, for the first time, allowed young people to take their music with them, away from the prying ears of parents. And this coincided with the rise of a new form of popular music that was a stew of R&B, blues, country, western hillbilly, and a few other things. That mixing was aided by these radio stations playing a hodgepodge of material in the evening. And by 1951, something new was happening. It was the birth of rock and roll. Now, you can't just drop a pin and say that rock and roll started with this song. This is the first rock and roll record. You can't do that. Its birth happened gradually. As all this disparate, popular sounds of the day mixed and matched and evolved and mutated. But there are some landmark recordings. Some will point to a 1947 song by Roy Brown, a black blues singer from Louisiana, what a hit with a song called Good Rockin' Tonight. Well, I'm gonna hold my baby tight as I can. Tonight she'll know I'm a mighty, mighty man. I heard the news and a good rockin' tonight. Oh, yes, I heard the news. That same song was released by Winoni Harris, another black performer. Between the two performers and a few more songs with rock in the title or lyrics, the notion of rockin' as a musical thing, moved deeper into the public consciousness. Same thing with Rock the Joint by Jimmy Preston and Drinkin' Wine's Bo D.O.D. That was by Stick McGee, both of them from 1949. But if you want to be bold and commit to a single song as the first true rock and roll record, again, really tough to do, but we're going to do it anyway, we can maybe go out on a limb and nominate a track by Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats, released sometime in late March 1951. Jackie, a black man, was the sax player in Ike Turner's band. Of course, yes, that's the same Ike Turner that would later marry and abuse Tina. On March 2nd, 1951, all the Delta Cats packed up an old station wagon in front of the Riverside Hotel in Clarksdale, Mississippi, where they'd been rehearsing and were ready to make a record. With everybody crammed into the car and the musical instruments in the back, 
They started on the 75-mile drive north to Sun Studios in Memphis along Highway 61. Somewhere along the way, the car had a flat, and everybody had to pull over, get out, unload all the gear, find the spare, and change the tire. However, the story is that someone was careless and dropped bass player Willie Kitzart's amp. No problem, just dust it off, fix the tire, and, and, and get to Memphis. When they got to the studio, Kitzart realized that when his bass amp hit the ground back on the side of the highway, the speaker cone had come jarred loose. It now gave off a buzz and a vibration instead of a clean, cool sound. They tried to fix that by jamming some newspaper around the gaps, but that only made the vibrations and the buzz worse. But then producer Sam Phillips, a white guy, said, hold on, it sounds kind of cool. Let's use it as is. So they did. And in the process, they may have created the first rock and roll record. Now let's listen to this. The vocals are up front. Power is supplied by the piano and a couple of saxophones. The drums are a good time backbeat. But Kitsart's bass was distorted. That was new. See, you can hear it. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving on along. Lots of hallmarks of rock and roll, don't you think? But you want to know the main argument for that being touted as the first rock and roll record? It was because Sam Phillips said it was. There were dozens, perhaps hundreds of other candidates. But because Sam Phillips said so all the time, and remember, this is the guy who discovered Elvis Presley, the legend became something of a fact. What isn't up for discussion is that the vast, vast majority of these proto-rock and roll songs were from black artists. Back with more rock and roll firsts from black artists in just a moment. We've been through a list of important firsts in the history of rock and roll, all from black artists. So let's review. George W. Johnson the first person with a hit record and the first person to reach number one on the earliest music charts. Trixie Smith, introducing the concept of rockin' and rollin' on record. Charles Christian, the first guitar hero. George Barnes, the first person to commit an electric guitar solo to record. And the busted-up amplifier used by Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats. All these people were Americans of African descent. Now, let's just back up a sec. If Charlie Christian was the first guitar hero, who was the first female guitar hero? A lot of people will point to Sister Rosetta Tharp, a guitarist who graduated to the electric guitar and has been called the godmother of rock and roll. Listen, if you want to fight about it, take it up with Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, Little Richard, and Chuck Berry. They all revered this queer black woman from Cotton Plant, Arkansas, and others would soon follow. She provided an important bridge between gospel blues and a loose type of swing music that contributed to the development of rock and roll. She started playing and writing in the 1930s, and by 1956, she was doing this. Up above my head, up above my head, I hear the music in the air. Up above my head, I hear music in the air. Up above my head. In the spring of 1964, Sister Rosetta Tharp embarked on a European tour that included a stop in Manchester. Her performance was so inspiring that it changed the lives of four notable members of the audience, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and both Keith Richards and Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. After that, they became disciples. I mentioned that Sister Rosetta was queer, but that was something that she kept quiet. But then we have Little Richard. 
And you can make an argument that he was rock's first openly gay rock star. Now, there was no question that Little Richard was gay, or at the very least bisexual with a leaning towards being gay. He played up his effeminate mannerisms, wore makeup, worked in the rough trade for a while, and was once arrested for spying on men in public toilets. He even proclaimed, Elvis may have been the king of rock and roll, but I am the queen. Man, you know, black, gay, and performing through the U.S. South in the 1950s? How much guts did that take? But Little Richard was always at war with his sexuality, sometimes exulting in it, sometimes descending into self-loathing. But in terms of his effect and influence, that was something else. His flamboyance, his energy, and his music reverberated through all of rock and roll. He had a massive effect on everyone from the Beatles to James Brown to David Bowie and even Lemmy of Motorhead. And I'll throw this one in. Little Richard was the first black artist to cross over. He appealed to all races, breaking the color barrier. A Little Richard show attracted both black and white people, which helped change culture. Here's one of his best-known songs. And if you want some not-so-subtle hints about his sexuality when this song was written and released, search for the original, uncensored lyrics of Tutti Frutti. You might be surprised. From Little Richard, we're going to move to Chuck Berry, the man named the father of rock and roll. If anyone can be credited with being the first to take rhythm and blues and rocking it up, it's got to be him. More than any other person, he made rock into a separate and distinct thing, riffing through two and three chord songs on his electric guitar with style and showmanship. So much of the standard rock and roll style, the foundation from which everything was built on, came from Chuck Berry. He had the swagger. He had the attitude. His lyrics were aimed squarely at young people and the trouble that they often found themselves in. He was big into guitar solos. And although his career began in the era before giant amplifiers and distortion pedals, there was a roughness and a rawness that presaged everything that was to come almost a decade later. So that's one first for Chuck Berry. But here's another one that is going to last literally for infinity. In 1977, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 were launched on a grand tour of our solar system. In 1989, both spacecraft passed the orbits of Pluto and Neptune on their way to interstellar space. When I last checked, Voyager 1 was more than 15 billion miles from Earth. Voyager 2 was almost 13 billion miles from home, racing away at nearly 40,000 miles an hour. The people who built Voyager were optimistic. What if... In the far distant future, these probes were found by an advanced alien species. Shouldn't there be some kind of introduction, some kind of greeting on board? Well, there is. This is the Voyager Golden Disc. It's a phonograph record made of gold, one of the toughest elements in the universe. It contains pictures and coordinates and drawings, but it also contains sounds of Earth, spoken word recordings, and a lot of music. There is exactly one rock and roll song on the Voyager Golden Disc. And if an alien civilization ever finds one of our Voyager probes, their introduction, their first exposure to rock, will come from a black man. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans, way back up in the woods among the evergreens, there stood alone. 
Let's move on to Jimi Hendrix. He provided rock with a lot of firsts when it came to the sounds an electric guitar could make. But I want to focus on one particular thing. Jimi Hendrix was the first, or at least one of the very, very, very first, to incorporate a new effects pedal into a sound. If Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones popularized the distortion pedal by using it on I Can't Get No Satisfaction in 1965, Jimmy was right there when the wah-wah pedal came in in 1967. This particular effect had been reproduced mechanically by brass players as far back as the 1920s. Now, depending on who's telling the story, it was either Eric Clapton, who used the wah-wah pedal on record for the first time with the song Tales of Brave Ulysses, or... It was Jimi Hendrix with the B-side Burning the Midnight Lamp. Both came out within days of each other in the spring of 1967. It is said that Jimmy bought his, a unit made by Vox, the company who supplied amplifiers to the Beatles and accidentally discovered the technology, from Manny's Music on West 48th Street in New York earlier that year. Another story. He'd seen Frank Zappa use one and loved it. And Zappa gave Jimmy his wah-wah pedal. Oh, and another. Jimmy's bass player, Noel Redding, was looking for gear in London when a music store employee told him to bring Jimmy by for a listen to this new pedal. Whichever of these stories and timelines you want to believe, Jimmy used his wah-wah pedal a lot. Now let's fast forward to another great guitarist of African descent, Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine. He loves his wah. It first shows up in this song about 30 seconds in. I have a couple of other rock and roll firsts that can be credited to black artists coming up. Hang on. This next look at a rock and roll first by a black artist is actually a twofer. We begin with Bo Diddley, the man who used a particular rhythm so effectively that we actually now call it the Bo Diddley beat. You'll know it instantly. Bo didn't invent that beat. Its history goes back at least 50 years. But he was the one who introduced it to rock and roll. Everyone from Iggy Pop to Jet has used that rhythm in their hit songs. So we need to put Bo Diddley on our list. But we also have to look at his band. If Sister Rosetta Tharp was the godmother of rock and roll, is there someone we can call the mother of rock and roll? I'd like to suggest Peggy Jones. She started working as a guitarist in Bo Diddley's band in 1957. This black woman was recognized as one of the first female rock guitarists in a famous rock band. She'd later be recognized for her experiments with guitar synthesizers, and nobody used those in R&B music. Here's another one. Was the first punk band black? There's an argument to be made for three brothers from Detroit. In February 1964, David, Bobby, and Dennis Hackney saw the Beatles perform on Ed Sullivan. They messed about in their bedrooms and performed gigs for friends in their garage. By 1971, they called themselves Rockfire Funk Express. But then their father died in a car accident, and that's when Rockfire Funk Express changed their name to Death. 
they started making records that sadly went largely unnoticed, partly because they only came out in runs of maybe 500 copies. And then in 1977, death broke up. But in 2009, they were rediscovered. Recordings from the early 1970s started making the rounds. And damn, these songs sure sounded pretty punky. It's hard to match up the timelines, but it is possible that Death was making music like this before the Ramones played their first gig in 1974. Death, three black brothers from Detroit, making pretty convincing punk rock before there was such a thing. So it makes you wonder where music might have gone had more people known about death when they were together in the early 1970s. Finally, while we're on the topic of punk, we must acknowledge Tina Bell. In the early 1980s, just as the sound of grunge was in its very earliest stages, Tina was a black woman fronting a group called Bam Bam, a group that also featured a drummer by the name of Matt Cameron, by the way. And yes, that is the Matt Cameron of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. If we look at things in context of the history of grunge, she was the genre's first ever female front person. She and her husband, Tommy Martin, formed Bam Bam in 1983. And Tina was tough. She had to be because a black female punk singer? A lot of racial abuse was hurled at her. But Bam Bam also had their fans. Some kid named Kurt Cobain once worked as a roadie for Bam Bam. In 1984, they made their first record. They used Reciprocal Recording, making them the first grunge band to make music there. Reciprocal would later be used by Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, The Melvins, Mudhoney, and a ton of others. That Bam Bam EP was called Villains, and was released at least a year before other early grunge groups started releasing records. And for the next few years, Tina and Bam Bam were part of the local Seattle scene, opening shows for future stars like Soundgarden. But Bam Bam had a hard time gaining any kind of traction. They were pretty much ignored, even though a lot of these other local bands were blowing up. Tina left Bam Bam in 1990 and moved to England to see if she could make anything happen there. Well, that didn't work. And after moving to the Netherlands, she was deported back to the U.S. as part of some kind of immigration crackdown. And that was it. Tina quit music. She got divorced. She fell in hard times, battled depression and alcoholism, and was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. Tina Bell died in Las Vegas on October 10th, 2012, at the age of 55. Her body remained undiscovered for a couple of weeks. By the time her son arrived at her apartment, someone had thrown out all her possessions, including lyrics, music, diaries, and poems. Tina Bell needs to be remembered as someone who helped invent grunge, one of the founders of the sound that defined rock in the 1990s. She was the godmother of grunge. And this is called Ground Zero. Like I said way back at the beginning, the history of rock and roll is filled with firsts, innovations, and experiments by artists of African descent. It is absolutely 100% impossible for our music to sound the way it does today without the contributions of the people mentioned on this program. And there are plenty of others. We can go back to Big Joe Turner and his 1954 song, Shake, Rattle, and Roll, one of the template songs for rock and roll during that era. There's Nona Hendrix a former member of LaBelle and a founding member of Black Rock Coalition, a nonprofit that provides help for black artists. 
polystyrene, one of the original punks and the singer for Britain's X-Ray Specs. She was probably the first black female front person for a punk band. There's Don Letts. He was a member of Big Audio Dynamite with Mick Jones at The Clash. And he got involved in the early punk scene as a DJ spinning dub and reggae records in clubs, introducing that music to pioneers in the punk era to new genres. And that was a first. Again, the contributions of these people need to be remembered, commemorated, and celebrated. Because without them and others like them, who knows where we would be today? There are hundreds of ongoing history programs available as podcasts. Just go to your favorite download site and grab as many as you want. If you need a daily shot of music news and information, there's my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It comes with a free daily newsletter that goes out to people all over the world. I'm pretty much on all the social media platforms. Email should go to alan at alancross.ca. And if you like a little true crime with your music, there's my other program, Uncharted, Crime and Mayhem in the Music Industry. It's a podcast that's available everywhere, too. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross.